on Sunday evenings, the first Sunday of the month, I have begun back several months ago to take questions, to preach lessons, to answer those questions. One of the ones that I have been asked repeatedly over the years was, will you preach a lesson on the AD 70 doctrine? And tonight I am going to fulfill that request. I've not over the years because I didn't believe it was needed to be preached in this area. And sometimes if you preach on something that nobody knows anything about, somebody might say, hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'm going to latch on to that false doctrine. But it is a problem now. Let me begin by pointing out to you that there have always been and perhaps always will be those who will unsettle the souls of Christians. For instance, in Acts chapter 15, there was, right after the church got a strong impetus for growth, there was a problem with regards to those who were being converted who were Gentiles. And some had begun to teach that they must keep the law of Moses or they could not be saved. When you drop down to verse 24, the letter that responded to this said, since some have heard, or since we have heard some who went out from us, have troubled you with words unsettling your souls. There are people who will come along, and when you hear what they say, it really begins to shake your faith in what you believed about what was written in God's Word. Sadly, because some people teach False doctrine, it will overthrow the faith of some people. Brother Philip read to us just a moment ago from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18 where he says that there were some who said the resurrection is past already. And when they do that, they overthrow the face of some. If I were to say tonight, there's no resurrection of the dead, would that bother you? Would that destroy your faith? Would that make you wonder about what the future would hold? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, Paul writes, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, in the first century, even when the apostle Paul was preaching and teaching, there were some who were denying the resurrection They were saying there was no resurrection. The Bible teaches us that we must mark, that is to take note of, as we mentioned in our lesson this morning, those who teach these divisive doctrines. In chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 of Romans, Now I urge you, brethren, to note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. Now, tonight, I'm going to have two very simple basic points. And I will tell you that you may say, well, I wanted you to explore this idea or that idea. I will tell you that a congregation in Florida had a lectureship on this topic just a few months ago, and they had a whole week's lectureship on this very topic. So I'm not going to deal with every issue that they might raise. I am going to do this. Number one, I want to explain what this doctrine is. I'm going to let one of the proponents uh, speak for himself. I want you to hear his own words. Then number two, 
I want us to begin to examine this doctrine based upon what you know the Bible teaches. And so we're going to really just try to make it as simple as possible. First of all, let's talk about some terminology. And I could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm not going to do it in depth. I just want to introduce it to you. Sometimes this is called the AD 70 doctrine. And the reason for that is they believe that there was the culmination of all the Old Testament prophecies find their end fulfillment in A.D. 70. After that, they say there's no more prophecy to be fulfilled at all. Sometimes it's called realized eschatology. The word eschatos is the Greek word for last or end. And you may have heard the term eschatology used because it talks about the last time or the ends of time. When you say realized, you say it's already been realized, that the end is already over, it's already passed. There's one of the proponents of this by the name of Max King. He coined, in fact, even registered the trademark of the term transmillennialism. And he liked that term primarily because he came up with it, but he liked it because he compared that to premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. He, he said, I've got a new doctrine. Mine, mine's different and separate from all of those. Sometimes it's called radical predatorism. And uh, the word predator means past, something that's happened in the past. And so... Many people would say that there's full predatorism, which says everything is fulfilled in the past, and there's one that is called partial, which says some of it's fulfilled in the past, some of it is yet to be filled in the future. And then it's also known as kingism, named after Max King. He is the one among our brethren who has been promoting this. Now, to explain it to you, I think best to let one of the persons who's teaching this now to speak for himself. This man has held gospel meetings here in Warren County. He was a student of mine when I taught at Tennessee Bible College, so I'm, I've known him well, known him for many years. He at one time would preach and teach the truth, but he responded to a brother this past summer who asked the question what he believed, and so I'm going to put it on the screen in front of you, and I'm going to read it, and I will tell you this is from his Facebook page. It was dated June the 27th of 2015, so that's less than a year ago, at 6.03 p.m. I copied it so I could be able to document it for you. Here's what he says. My position is that the second coming of Christ occurred in AD 70, when Jerusalem fell. I do not believe in a future coming of Christ. I believe the day of judgment took place when all of the dead in Hades were judged and God then opened heaven to the faithful and hell to the unfaithful. And he cites Revelation chapter 11 verses 18 and 19. Today we are judged by the gospel. Since Christ promised the faithful to pass from death to life, John 5, verse 24, Christians will have no 
future judgment but go right to heaven. Those outside of Christ will too receive their, and that is misspelled, but I copied it exactly, their reward upon their death. The coming of the Lord was to come before some of that generation would die, Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28, and before their own persecution would end in death, Matthew 10, verse 23. I've not edited that at all. That's exactly like it appeared on his Facebook page. I think that's pretty much a statement of what those who believe in this doctrine hold. The Wayne Jackson, who is a very faithful brother, who has attempted to try to answer these brethren, has summarized their view under four points. And I want to list them for you. These are from Brother Wayne Jackson. He said, They believe the second coming of Christ occurred in A.D. 70. There is therefore to be no future return of the Lord. So this idea that the Lord is coming back again is not going to happen. Number two, the resurrection of the dead took place with the fall of Jerusalem. There will be no future resurrection of the body. None whatsoever. Number three, the day of judgment transpired with the Roman invasion of AD 70 and there is no judgment yet to come. And number four, the end of the world was realized when the Jewish system ended in AD 70. Biblical references to the end of the world, therefore, relate to the end of Judaism and not to the end of the material globe. In other words, this world is not going to be destroyed. Now, let me give you a little bit of history. This actually began with a Jesuit priest in 1554 to 15 or 1613. His name was Louis de Alcar and uh, Alcazar, and uh, he began with this idea that the Lord's coming occurred in AD 70. It was promoted much more in the late 1800s by a man by the name of J.S. Russell. And he actually wrote a book called The Parousia, in which he took that position. It pretty much lay dormant until the coming of a man by the name of C.H. Dodd. And he wrote under the topic Realized Eschatology. And if you search the history books, you can find the documentation of his views. And that was in the 1930s. But in the 1970s, this took off like wildfire among many of our brethren in the Ohio area. And many of them began to fall under the spell of a man by the name of Max King. He wrote a book called The Spirit of Prophecy. He debated some of our brethren. He debated Brother Gus Nichols. He debated Brother Jim McGuigan. He debated several of them on the issue. And uh, his son, Tim King, is actually the head of his organization now. But that began because our brethren rose up and put it down. It didn't spread very far outside of the area of Ohio. But in the 1990s, a brother by the name of Don Preston in Ardmore, Oklahoma, picked it up. 
he and another man who lives in Memphis, Tennessee, by the name of William Bell, began to promote it. And again, they debated a number of our brethren, and uh, it pretty much was contained in Oklahoma and among a small group in Memphis. And uh, as I've been asked in the years past to preach on it, we didn't have a problem in this area. However, some of us are very familiar with some of these men. Uh, there's a brother by the name of Steve Baisden who is a preacher in Michigan. The Holger Neubauer preaches at a congregation in Michigan. And several now of the congregations in that area have been inundated with this teaching. Now that you have the Internet where teachings like this can take off and go into all different areas, now's the time to deal with the subject and uh, to address it. The question that many people ask me is, where do they get this idea? I, I, I want you to explain to me where this comes from. What they do is they go and they look at the passages in the Bible which says the Lord is coming back soon, particularly in that generation. And the passages, and I'm just referring to a few of them, there's many of them, but Revelation 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Verse 20, He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And their contention is, see, the, it says it's coming quickly. It's been 2,000 years. How can we say that he was coming quickly if it's been 2,000 years? They said, but AD 70, that makes sense. In Luke 21, verses 22 and 32, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And then they drop down to verse 32. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass till all these things take place. And then James 5, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So they would say all these passages, and they would multiply all these ones, like 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. And they would say, see, the Lord's coming was expected during that period of time. And they would talk about the generation. This generation will not pass. The generation was considered to be 40 years. A.D. 33, A.D. 70, they would say that's the perfect timing. I would point out to you that the Bible uses coming in both a figurative and a literal sense. They have to have all the comings of the Lord to be in a figurative sense. But you know, if you go to such passages as John chapter 14 and verse 18, Jesus talks about his coming in Pentecost. He told the disciples, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. How did he come? He came through the power of the Holy Spirit, through that rushing mighty wind that sat upon each of the apostles. He provided them the guidance and the direction. And that was not a literal but a figurative usage of it. Well, what I want to do as we examine this is I want to take you through your Bibles 
And I want to take this doctrine and see, does it stand and does it meet the test of Scripture? You know, we're told to prove all things, to hold fast what is good, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. Well, let's prove it, let's try it, let's test it. Let me point out to you that there is an element of truth within their false teaching. That's the way Satan has always worked. Do you remember when Satan asked Eve, may you eat of any tree of the garden? She said, well, we can eat of any tree of the garden except the one that God has said you shall not eat of it lest you die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan said, you will not surely die for God knows that the day that you eat of it that you will be like God knowing good and evil. Will she know that? Well, sure she will. But the part about you will not surely die was a lie. You have to realize that the only way you can get people to believe something is to add a little bit of truth to it to make it believable. But I want to point out to you that this doctrine contradicts plain, clear Bible teaching. I want to begin with the idea of the resurrection. They say the resurrection was this symbolic thing that occurred in the past, that it was only figurative, that it describes, and I'm using their terms, the emergence of the church from persecution. That the church was just raised up from being persecuted to being the church in prominence. Well, let's go to the Bible. What does the Bible teach? John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Will all the people in the graves come forth? Well, if not, then certainly the scriptures are lacking because Jesus says they're all going to come forth. Well, I've got to say, well, I need to know what the word resurrection even means. What kind of idea is he talking about? Well, if I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus was the first one. The others are going to follow, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Now think with me. What happened to Jesus? Jesus was in that tomb. Jesus rose from that grave, he rose from that tomb, he got up, he walked, he talked. I've got a question. Was the tomb empty? If you start talking about the resurrection of the dead, are there people who were in the tomb that were there in the first century? And you say, I don't know if I'm following you or not. If the resurrection occurred in A.D. 70, why didn't all those bodies get up and leave the tomb exactly like Jesus did? Matthew 28, verse 6. He's not here. He's risen. They said, come see the place where the Lord lay. I want to add one more. You know, you're, whenever, if you're like me, you're sitting around sometimes, you're thinking and you say, well... What about the resurrection? 
This is one that's not going to be on the screen. If you will, turn your Bibles to Matthew 22 with me for just a moment. This is one that uh, I was sitting and thinking, and I thought, well, this really has application. Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise also the second, third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Now listen carefully to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. If they believe the resurrection occurred in A.D. 70, why are they married? Because in the resurrection, Jesus said there's no marriage or giving in marriage. I think it's obvious to see how ridiculous this is. Let's talk about the second coming of Christ for just a little bit. Will the whole world know when this event occurs? They say it occurred in A.D. 70. In Acts 1 and verse 11... The angel said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. When Jesus comes back again, will everybody see him? Well, let's explore that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 16. He says, those of us who are alive will not precede those who are fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Let me ask you, if there is a sound of shouting from heaven, if there is the voice of the archangel, and there is a trumpet of God, do you think you'll know it? Absolutely you will. To say that the Lord's coming occurred in AD 70 has it happening and nobody else knows about it but just precious few. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. When does all this occur? When Jesus returns again. What will happen? There will be a sound of a great trumpet. What about the partaking of the Lord's Supper? Do these people still partake of the Lord's Supper? I know they do. But do you know what 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26 says? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death, now notice that last phrase, till he comes. Well, if the Lord came in AD 70, are they still partaking the Lord's Supper? What about the earthly rulers? What about even death itself? In 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Oh, you mean we don't have government rulers today? For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he's put all things under his feet. But when he says that, it's evident that he who put him under all things, under him is accepted. Now, at this point, you've got to ask the question. If the last enemy that is to be destroyed is death when Jesus comes, why are people still dying? Why does death still occur if Jesus conquered death? That's the reason why when you get to the end of the chapter, death is swallowed up in victory. Let's talk about the judgment. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and kingdom. Oh, you mean when the Lord comes again, that's when judgment day is going to take place. These brethren are saying there's not going to be another judgment day. It's already in the past. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will so come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness, looking forward or for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved and being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This world will be destroyed. And judgment will take place then. They suggest that the judgment was only about Judaism. But the final judgment is not just to Jews. When I go to Acts 17 verse 30, truly the times of this ignorance, and this is in Athens, God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we all must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive according to the deeds done in the body whether good or bad. And then I think about that great passage at the end of the book of Revelation chapter 20 verses 10 and following. Particularly, you get to verse 11. For I saw the great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose face the heaven and the earth fled away, and there was found no place before them, or for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. 
Do you see the picture of that great judgment scene? Who all's there? Is it just Judaism? No, it's the small, the great. It's everyone. But they would say, oh, but you've got to understand that that phrase, the end of the world, literally means the end of the age. And if you read the New American Standard, you read the New King James, you read many of they will say the end of the age. And they would say, all that's saying, it's the end of the Judaism, end of that age. Well, if that's true, what about the angelic activity in the parable of the tares? Matthew 13, verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. You get to verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just. Oh, sounds like the end of the age is the end of the world. The end of time. Oh, that's the meaning of age as well. If that's true, is the Great Commission still valid? You can say, what do you mean? Well, if the age ended in A.D. 70, listen to what Jesus said in giving the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. Oh, if the age ended in AD 70, are we still to go make disciples? Are we still to baptize men in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Oh, if you embrace this doctrine, there's so many ridiculous things. I've tried to give you just a brief overview. There's so much more that could be said. But we always ought to test what men say by the revealed will of God. The people of Berea were praised in Acts 17, verse 11. These were more fair-minded. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. It's the truth of God that saves, not man's doctrine. Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. But let me come back to one of the most basic elements of all this and that's the resurrection of the dead. You know, when I began this lesson pointing out from Paul's writing to Timothy how that some denied the resurrection overthrowed the faith of some, my confidence my hope is in the fact that there will be one day that not only myself but everybody else will come out of that grave no longer corruptible but now incorruptible ready for that eternal home and in 1 Corinthians 15 1 and 2 Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Then you drop down to verse 16 through 19. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, it's vain, and you are still in your sins. 
then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Brethren, I hope that you never embrace a false doctrine that destroys your confidence in God and your future hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of our own. Tonight, if you are not a Christian, we want to urge you to be obedient to the gospel. I realize the lesson that I preach tonight is not the kind of lesson designed to encourage and promote one becoming a Christian, but I realize sometimes people have been thinking about it for a while and they say, I plan to do it tonight. We'd love to see a new brother, new sister in Christ tonight. Maybe that you're a Christian. There's sins that are in your life and you feel the burden of those sins and you want to relieve that burden. We'd love for you to be able to be restored tonight. We invite you to come as together we stand and sing.